0: anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day low actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw for void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
1: true crime odyssey deals with violent and often disturbing crimes committed against men women and children these stories are not suitable for all audiences listener discretion is strongly advised What's the problem, ma'am? Oh, well, there's some guy I've been uh, taking the place out. So i i live alone and I'm an old lady. <laughs> to wake up in the morning and and realize what I had done and with a clear mind and all my essential moral and ethical feelings intact at that moment, uh, uh, absolutely horrified that I was capable of doing something like that. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. It was a way of uh, making me feel that uh, they were a part of me. I believe in the, in the evil in human nature. This is a wicked, wicked world. And uh, in a wicked world, you wicked people are born. I'm not gonna blame society, my race, the people, or anything. Uh, it is up to the individual like myself to to keep on knocking on on whatever door they want to get into. John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17, 1942, at Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. He was the second of three children and the only son of his parents, John Stanley Gacy, and Marion Elaine Robison. His father was a World War II veteran and worked as an auto repair machinist, while his mother was a homemaker. Casey's family was of Polish and Danish descent and practiced Catholicism. Casey had a strong bond with his mother and two sisters, but his relationship with his father was strained. His father was an alcoholic who often verbally and physically abused his family. Gacy's father would frequently demean him, calling him dumb and stupid and comparing him unfavorably to his sisters. One of Gacy's earliest memories was of his father beating him with a leather belt when he was just four years old. His mother tried to protect him from his father's abuse, which led to accusations of him being a sissy and a mama's boy who would probably grow up queer. In 1949, after Gacy and another boy were caught inappropriately touching the young girl, his father whipped him with a razor strap. That same year, a family friend began to molest Gacy on occasion. Gacy never confided in his father about the molestation, fearing his father would blame him, despite their tumultuous relationship. Gacy loved his father but always felt he was never good enough for him. Gacy was heavyset and not athletic as a child. Due to a heart condition, he was advised to steer clear of sports. In the fourth grade, Gacy started experiencing blackouts. He was occasionally hospitalized due to these episodes and in 1957 for a ruptured appendix. Gacy estimated that he spent nearly a year in the hospital between the ages of 14 and 18, which he believed contributed to his declining grades due to missed school. Dacey's medical condition was never definitively diagnosed. His father suspected he was feigning illness. On one occasion, his father openly accused Gacy of faking his condition while he was in a hospital bed. In 1960, at the age of 18, Dacey embarked on his political career, taking on the role of assistant precinct captain for a local Democratic Party candidate. His political activities were met with further scorn from his father, who dismissively called him a patsy. That same year, Gacy's father bought him a car, but kept the title in his own name until Gacy could fully pay for it, a process that spanned several years. If Gacy defied his father, he would confiscate the car keys. In April 1962, Daisy acquired a spare set of keys. In response, his father removed the distributor cap and kept it for three days, shortly after his father reinstalled the cap. Gacy left home with $136 to his name and headed to Nevada with hopes of living with a cousin. Upon arriving in Las Vegas, Gacy initially worked for the city's ambulance service before transitioning to Palm Mortuary. For three months, he served as a mortuary attendant, witnessing embalmings and occasionally acting as a pallbearer. He slept on a cot behind the embalming room and later confessed that one night. He climbed into the coffin of a deceased teenage boy, embracing and caressing the body before being overwhelmed with shock. This incident prompted Gacy to return home. Shortly thereafter, Gacy enrolled at Northwestern Business College, despite not having a high school diploma. He graduated in 1963 and accepted a management trainee position at the Nunbush Shoe Company. In 1964, the company transferred him to Springfield to work as a salesman and later promoted him to department manager. In March of that year, he proposed to Marlon Myers, a co-worker. During their engagement, Dacey joined the local JCS. That same year, he had his second homosexual encounter. Dacey alleged that a JCS colleague got him drunk and invited him to sleep on his couch, where the colleague then performed oral sex on him. By 1965, Gacy had ascended the ranks to become vice president of the Springfield JCS and was recognized as the third most outstanding JC in Illinois. Gacy and Myers wed in September 1964. Warland's father subsequently bought three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. The couple relocated there so Gacy could manage the restaurants, with the understanding that they would move into Marlon's parents' former home. The offer was lucrative. Gacy would earn $15,000 per year, the equivalent of around $144,000 today, plus a share of the restaurant's profits. Gacy opened a club in his basement where his employees could drink alcohol and play pool. Although Gacy employed teenagers of both sexes, he socialized only with the young men. Dacey often gave them alcohol before making sexual advances. If they rejected him, he would claim his advances were jokes or a test of morals. Dacey's wife gave birth to a son in February 1966 and a daughter in March 1967. Dacey later described this period of his life as perfect. He had finally earned his father's approval. When Gacy's parents visited in July 1966, his father privately apologized for the abuse he had inflicted before happily saying, Son, I was wrong about you, as he shook Gacy's hand. In Waterloo, Gacy joined the local J.C.'s chapter, regularly dedicating extra hours to the organization in addition to the 12- and 14-hour days he worked managing the restaurants. At meetings, Gacy often supplied fried chicken and insisted on being referred to as colonel. He and other Waterloo Jaycees were also deeply involved in drug abuse, pornography, prostitution, and wife-swapping. Despite being seen as ambitious and boastful, the other Jaycees respected him for his fundraising efforts. In 1967, he was named Outstanding Vice President of the Waterloo Jaycees and served on the board of directors. In August 1967, Donald Voorhees Jr., a 15-year-old boy and son of local politician Donald Edwin Voorhees, was sexually assaulted by Gacy. Gacy, a fellow Jacy, enticed Voorhees to his home with the promise of showing him heterosexual stag films, a common occurrence at Jacy events. Gacy gave Voorhees alcohol, showed him a stag film, and then convinced him to participate in mutual oral sex, stating, You have to have sex with a man before you start having sex with women. Over the next few months, Gacy abused several other young boys in a similar manner, including one whom he manipulated into having sex with his wife before blackmailing him into performing oral sex on him. Gacy also deceived several teenagers into thinking he was conducting homosexual experiments for scientific research, paying them up to $50 each. In March 1968, Voorhees revealed to his father that he had been sexually assaulted by Gacy. His father immediately reported this to the police, leading to Gacy's arrest and charges of performing oral sodomy on Voorhees and attempting to assault 16-year-old Edward Lynch. Gacy strongly denied the charges and insisted on taking a polygraph test, which indicated deception. Gacy maintained his innocence publicly, claiming the charges were politically motivated due to Voorhees' opposition to Gacy's nomination for president of the Iowa Jaycees. Several Jaycees believed Gacy and supported him. However, on May 10, 1968, Gacy was indicted on the sodomy charge. On August 30, 1968, Gacy offered his employee, 18-year-old Russell Schroeder, $300 to physically assault Voorhees to dissuade him from testifying in court. Schroeder lured Voorhees to a secluded park, sprayed Mason in his eyes, and then attacked him. Voorhees managed to escape and reported the assault to the police, identifying Schroeder as his attacker. Schroeder was arrested the next day and, after initially denying involvement, confessed to assaulting Voorhees at Gacy's behest. Gacy was arrested again and charged with hiring Schroeder to assault and intimidate Voorhees. On September 12, Gacy was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation at the University of Iowa Psychiatric Hospital. Two doctors diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, stating he was unlikely to benefit from treatment and his behavior would likely continue to cause conflict with society. They concluded he was mentally competent to stand trial. On November 7, 1968, Gacy pleaded guilty to one count of sodomy in relation to Voorhees, but not guilty to the charges related to other youths. Gacy claimed Voorhees had offered himself to him and that he had acted out of curiosity, but no one believed his story. Dacey was convicted of sodomy on December 3rd and sentenced to 10 years in prison at the Anamosa State Penitentiary. That same day, Dacey's wife filed for divorce, asking for the couple's home and property, sole custody of their two children, and alimony. The court ruled in her favor, and the divorce was finalized on September 18, 1969. Dacey never saw his first wife or children again. While in prison, Dacey quickly became known as a model prisoner. Within months of his arrival, he had become the head cook. He also joined the Inmate JC Chapter and increased its membership from 50 to 650 men in less than 18 months. Gacy managed to raise the inmates' daily pay in the prison mess hall and oversaw several projects to improve conditions for inmates, including the installation of a miniature golf course. He was awarded a Distinguished Service Award for his efforts within the Inmate JC Chapter in February 1970. In June 1969, Gacy was denied parole. To prepare for a second scheduled parole hearing in May 1970, he completed 16 high school courses, earning his diploma in November 1969. On Christmas Day, Gacy's father died from cirrhosis. Gacy was devastated by the news and collapsed in tears. His request for supervised compassionate leave to attend the funeral was denied. Gacy was released on parole on June 18, 1970, after serving 18 months of his 10-year sentence, with a probation period of 12 months. His probation conditions required him to adhere to a nightly curfew and move to Chicago to live with his mother. Upon his release, Gacy assured his friend and fellow J.C. member, Clarence Lane, who had picked him up from prison and staunchly believed in Gacy's innocence, that he would never return to prison and planned to reestablish himself in Waterloo. However, within a day, Gacy had moved to Chicago. He arrived there by bus on June 19th and soon found employment as a short-order cook. On February 12, 1971, Gacy was accused of sexually assaulting a teenage boy who alleged that Gacy had enticed him into his car at Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal and driven him to his home, where he tried to coerce the boy into sex. The court dismissed this complaint when the boy did not appear. On June 22nd, Gacy was arrested and charged with aggravated sexual battery and reckless conduct. Following a complaint from a youth who claimed that Gacy had shown him a sheriff's badge, lured him into his car, and forced him to perform oral sex. These charges were dropped after the complainant tried to blackmail Gacy. The Iowa Board of Parole was not informed of these incidents. Gacy's parole ended on October 18, 1971, and a month later, the records of Gacy's criminal convictions in Iowa were sealed. With his mother's financial help, Gacy purchased a ranch house at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue in unincorporated Norwood Park Township, a part of metropolitan Chicago. He lived there until his arrest in December 1978 and, according to Gacy, committed all his murders there. Gacy was an active member of his local community and was helpful to his neighbors. He readily lent his construction tools and cleared snow from neighborhood walks free of charge. From 1974 to 1978, he hosted themed annual summer parties, which were attended by up to 400 people, including politicians and business associates. In August 1971, shortly after Gacy and his mother moved into the house, he became engaged to Carol Hoff, whom he had briefly dated in high school. Carol and her two young daughters from a previous marriage moved into Gacy's home soon after. They were married on July 1, 1972. His mother moved out of the house shortly before the wedding. By 1975, Gacy had told his wife that he was bisexual. After the couple had sex on Mother's Day that year, he informed her this would be the last time they would do so. He began spending most evenings away from home, only to return in the early morning with the excuse he had been working late or conducting business meetings. Carol observed Gacy bringing teenage boys into his garage in the early hours and also found gay pornography and men's wallets and identification inside the house. When she confronted Gacy about these items, he informed her angrily that it was none of her business. In October 1975, after a heated argument, Carol asked Gacy for a divorce. He agreed and by mutual consent, she continued to live at the West Somerdale house until February 1976. On March 2nd, The Gacy's divorce, decreed on the false grounds of Gacy's infidelity with women, was finalized. In 1971, Gacy established a part-time construction business, PDM Contractors. With the approval of his probation officer, Gacy worked evenings on his construction contracts while working as a cook during the day. Initially, he undertook minor repair work, but later expanded to include projects such as interior design, remodeling, and landscaping. In mid-1973, Gacy quit his job as a cook so he could commit fully to his construction business. Gacy's involvement in a local moose club led him to discover a clown club known as Jolly Joker. The club members regularly performed at charity events, parades, and even volunteered to entertain children in hospitals. In late 1975, Gacy joined the club and created his own clown personas, Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown, complete with his own makeup and costumes. He characterized Pogo as a happy clown and Patches as a more serious character. Casey rarely made money from his performances, but he found that playing a clown allowed him to regress into childhood. He performed as both pogo and patches at various local parties, political events, charity functions, and children's hospitals. His voluntary service as a clown during his years of committing murders earned him the nickname Killer Clown. PDM, Gacy's Company primarily employed high school students and young men. Gacy frequently made sexual advances towards his employees, often demanding sexual favors in exchange for loans, financial aid, or promotions. He also claimed to own firearms, once threatening an employee by saying how easy it would be to kill him and dispose of the body. In 1973, Gacy and a teenage employee traveled to Florida to inspect a property Gacy had bought. During the trip, Gacy sexually assaulted the employee in their hotel room. Upon their return to Chicago, the employee retaliated by physically assaulting Gacy in his front yard. Gacy explained to his wife that he had been attacked for refusing to pay the employee for substandard painting work. In May 1975, Gacy hired a 15-year-old named Anthony Antonucci. Two months later, he visited Antonucci at his home, aware that the boy had a foot injury. After sharing a bottle of wine and watching an adult film, Gacy attempted to assault Antonucci but was overpowered by the high school wrestler who managed to handcuff Gacy instead. Gacy threatened Antonucci, then calmed down and promised to leave if he was released. Antonucci agreed, and Gacy left. Antonucci continued to work for PDM for nine months after the incident, and Gacy made no further attempts to assault him. On July 26, 1976, Gacy offered a job to 18-year-old David Cram who started work that same day. On August 21st, Cram moved into Gacy's house. The next day, they celebrated Cram's 19th birthday with drinks, with Gacy dressed as Pogo. Gacy tricked Cram into wearing handcuffs and attempted to assault him, but Cram fought back and escaped. A month later, Gacy tried to assault Cram again, telling him, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. Cram resisted, and Gacy left the room, saying, You ain't no fun. Cram moved out on October 5th and left PDM, although he occasionally worked for Gacy over the next two years. Shortly after, another employee, 18-year-old Michael Rossi, moved in. Rossi had been working for PDM since May 23, 1976, and lived with Gacy until April 1977. Rossi sometimes assisted Gacy in his clown performances at business openings, with Gacy as Pogo and Rossi as Patches. By 1975, PDM was expanding rapidly and Gacy was working up to 16 hours per day. In March 1977, he became a supervisor for P.E. Systems, a firm specializing in the remodeling of drugstores. Between P.E. Systems and PDM, Gacy worked on up to four projects at a time and frequently traveled to other states. Despite his success, those who knew Gacy considered him ambitious and eager to make money. He often undercut his competition by employing high school students and young men, whom he paid a low wage. Gacy's business and community reputation were marred by his increasing involvement with young boys. He would often move them into his home or his car under the pretense of offering them work with his construction company. Once they were in his control, Gacy would sexually assault them, and in many cases, murder them. Gacy began his political career in the local Democratic Party, initially volunteering his employees to clean the party headquarters for free. His efforts were recognized with an invitation to join the Norwood Park Township Street Lighting Committee, eventually earning him the title of Precinct Captain. In 1975, Dacey was named director of Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade. His involvement with the parade, which he oversaw until 1978, led to a meeting and photo opportunity with First Lady Rosalind Carter. Dacey wore an s pin, signifying special clearance, during the encounter. This incident later caused embarrassment for the United States Secret Service. Gacy was responsible for the murder of at least 33 young men and boys, with 26 of them buried in the crawl space of his home. His victims ranged from acquaintances to random individuals he lured from Chicago's Greyhound bus station, Bughouse Square, or the streets with the promise of employment at PDM, drinks, drugs, or money for sex. Some victims were forcibly abducted, while others were deceived into thinking Gacy, who often carried a sheriff's badge and drove a black Oldsmobile with spotlights, was a police officer. Dacey typically targeted solitary victims, although he occasionally killed two individuals in one night, which he referred to as doubles. Once inside Gacy's home, he would typically gain the trust of a young man through alcohol, drugs, or other means. He would then introduce a pair of handcuffs under the guise of a magic trick or climb routine. He would initially cuff his own hands behind his back, then secretly free himself with the hidden key before offering to show his intended victim the trick. Once his victim was restrained, Dacey would proceed with sexual assault, and torture stay tuned for more true crime odyssey we'll be right back after these messages
0: hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day
1: his methods of torture included burning with cigars, forcing his captive to act like a horse while he sat on their back and pulled on makeshift reins around their necks, and violating them with foreign objects such as dildos and prescription bottles after he had sexually assaulted them. Pacey often shackled his victims' ankles to a two-by-four with handcuffs attached at each hand, a method inspired by the Houston mass murders. He was known to taunt his victims throughout their abuse and partially drown several in the bathtub before reviving them. Dacey typically killed his victims by tightening a rope tourniquet around their neck with a hammer handle, a method he referred to as the rope trick. He would often tell his victim, this is the last trick. Sometimes, the victim would convulse for an hour or two before dying, while others died from asphyxiation due to gag stuffed deep in their throats. Except for his last two victims, all were killed between 3 and 6 in the morning. Gacy usually kept the victim's bodies under his bed for up to 24 hours before burying them in the crawl space, where he would periodically pour quicklime to speed up decomposition. Some bodies were taken to his garage and embalmed before burial. The first murder attributed to Gacy took place on January 3, 1972. As per Gacy's own recounting, after a family gathering the night before, he went to the Civic Center in the Loop early in the morning to see an ice sculpture exhibition. He then enticed 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal into his vehicle. McCoy was en route to his father's house in Omaha and told Gacy his bus to Nebraska wasn't due until midday. Gacy showed McCoy around Chicago before taking him to his house, promising that he could stay the night and be driven back to the station in time for his bus. Before McCoy was identified, he was referred to as the Greyhound bus boy. Dacey alleged that he woke up early the next morning to find McCoy in his bedroom doorway, brandishing a kitchen knife. Dacey leapt from his bed and McCoy raised his arms in surrender, inadvertently slicing Dacey's forearm. Dacey disarmed McCoy, slammed his head against the bedroom wall, and kicked him into his wardrobe. McCoy retaliated by kicking Dacey in the stomach, causing him to double over. Dacey then seized McCoy, wrestled him to the ground, and repeatedly stabbed him in the chest. Dacey claimed that as McCoy lay dying, He cleaned the knife in his bathroom, then went to his kitchen and found breakfast preparations on the table. McCoy had set the table for two and had entered Gacy's room to wake him, absentmindedly carrying the knife. Gacy buried McCoy in his crawl space and later covered the grave with concrete. In a later interview, Gacy confessed that after killing McCoy, he felt totally drained, but also experienced a mind-numbing orgasm as he stabbed McCoy and listened to his dying gasps. He stated, That's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. Gacy confessed to his second murder around January 1974. This victim remains unidentified. He was strangled and stored in Gacy's closet before being buried. Gacy noted that bodily fluids leaked from the victim's mouth and nose, staining his carpet. To prevent this, Gacy began stuffing rags, the victim's underwear, or a sock into the mouths of his subsequent victims. On July 31, 1975, John Butkovich, an 18-year-old employee of PDM, went missing. Butkovich's car was later found abandoned with his jacket, wallet, and keys still inside. The day before his disappearance, Butkovich had confronted Gacy about unpaid wages. Butkovich's father contacted Gacy, who claimed he was willing to help search for his son, but regretted that Butkovich had run away. When questioned by police, Gacy claimed that Butkovich and two friends had come to his house demanding the overdue pay, but they had reached an agreement and all three had left. Over the next three years, Butkovich's parents contacted the police over 100 times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Gacy later confessed to seeing Butkovich leaving his car and waved to get his attention. According to Gacy, Butkovich approached him, saying, I want to talk to you. Gacy invited Butkovich into his car, then back to his house, ostensibly to discuss his unpaid wages. At his house, Gacy offered Butkovich a drink, then tricked him into allowing his wrists to be cuffed behind his back. Gacy later admitted to having sat on the kid's chest for a while before he strangled him. He stored Butkovich's body in his garage, planning to bury it later in the crawl space. When his wife and stepdaughters returned home earlier than expected, Gacy buried Butkovich under the concrete floor of his garage tool room extension, in a space where he had planned to dig a drain tile. Gacy's business saw significant growth in 1975, the same year he confessed to increasing his sexual encounters with young boys. He often referred to these activities as cruising. The majority of his murders took place between 1976 and 1978, a period when he was mostly living alone after his divorce. Despite maintaining his social obligations and community-oriented demeanor, Gacy's neighbors began noticing changes in his behavior following his 1976 divorce. These changes included frequent company of young boys, late-night arrivals and departures, and lights in his house turning on and off during early morning hours. One neighbor recalled hearing muffled screams and cries coming from the house on West Somerdale Avenue for several years. A month after his divorce was finalized, Casey kidnapped and killed 18-year-old Daryl Sampson. His last known location was in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Casey buried him under his dining room with a piece of cloth lodged in his throat. On May 14, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt vanished shortly after returning home from a dental appointment. That same evening, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton disappeared while walking home from his sister's apartment. Both boys were buried together in the crawl space, and investigators believe they were murdered on the same night. On June 3rd, Dacey murdered 17-year-old Michael Bonin, who disappeared while traveling from Chicago to walk again. Dacey strangled Bonin and buried him under the spare bedroom. Ten days later, Dacey killed 16-year-old William Carroll. And buried him in a common grave in the crawl space. Carroll was the first of four victims known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6, 1976. Three of the victims were between 16 and 17 years old, and one unidentified victim appears to have been an adult. On August 5th, 16 year old James Hawkinson made his last known phone call to his family, possibly from Gacy's home. Hawkinson died of suffocation and his body was buried in the crawl space beneath 17-year-old Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. Dacey is believed to have murdered two unidentified males between August and October 1976. On October 24th, Dacey kidnapped and killed teenage friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. Two days later, 19-year-old construction worker William Bundy disappeared after telling his family he was going to a party. Wendy died of suffocation and Gacy buried his body beneath his master bedroom. Between November and December 1976, Gacy murdered 21-year-old Francis Alexander. His last contact with his family was a phone call to his mother sometime in November. He was not reported missing as his family believed he had moved to California. Alexander was buried beneath the room Gacy used as his office. In December 1976, another PDM employee, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, disappeared. His girlfriend last saw him outside her house after he had driven her home following a date. Godzik had worked for PDM for less than three weeks when he disappeared. He had informed his family that Gacy had had him dig trenches for some kind of tiles in his crawlspace. Godzik's car was later found abandoned. His parents and older sister contacted Gacy about Godzik's disappearance. Gacy claimed that Godzik had expressed a wish to run away from home. He also claimed to have received an answering machine message from Godzik shortly after he had disappeared. When asked if he could play the message for Godzik's parents, Gacy said he had erased it. On January 20, 1977, Gacy lured 19-year-old John Shike to his house on the pretext of buying his Plymouth Satellite. He later confessed to strangling Shike in his spare bedroom, claiming Rossi was asleep in the house the following morning. Dacey later sold the car to Rossi for $300. Two months later, on March 15, 20-year-old John Prestige disappeared. Prestige was last seen leaving a near-Northside restaurant. He was buried in the crawlspace above the body of Francis Alexander. Shortly before his disappearance, Prestige had told his family that he had found work in the construction industry and was due to start a job in the suburbs. His family reported him missing after he failed to contact them or return home. On April 22, 1977, Gacy killed 18 year old Matthew Bowman, who was last seen outside a restaurant in his hometown of Crystal Lake. Bowman's body was found in the crawl space beneath Gacy's home. In July 1977, Gacy murdered 19-year-old Robert Gilroy, the son of a Chicago police sergeant. Gilroy was last seen alive on September 15th, and his body was later found in the crawlspace. In September, Gacy killed 20-year-old Russell Nelson, a construction worker from Minnesota who was visiting his brother in Chicago. Nelson was last seen outside a Chicago bar on October 17th. His body was later found in the crawlspace. In October, Gacy murdered 21-year-old Robert Wench, a Marine who was last seen alive on November 10th. In November, Gacy killed 16-year-old Tommy Bowling, who was last seen alive on November 18th. In December, Gacy murdered 17-year-old David Tausma, who disappeared after telling his mother he was going to a rock concert. In January 1978, Gacy killed 19-year-old William Kindred, who disappeared after telling his fiancée he was going to a bar. In March, Gacy murdered 26-year-old Timothy O'Rourke, who was last seen alive on June 16th. In May, Gacy killed 20-year-old Frank Landingen, who was last seen alive on November 4th. His body was later found in the Des Plaines River. In June, Gacy murdered 23-year-old James Mazara, who was last seen alive on November 24th. His body was later found in the Des Plaines River. In December, Gacy killed 15-year-old Robert Peist, his final victim. Peace disappeared on December 11th after telling his mother he was going to see a man about a job at a construction company. His body was later found in the Des Plaines River. On the afternoon of December 11th, 1978, Gacy made a visit to the Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines, where he was discussing a potential remodeling project with the store owner, Phil Torf. During this visit, he mentioned within hearing distance of 15 year old part time worker Robert Peast that his company often employed teenage boys at a starting wage of $5 per hour, nearly twice what Peast was earning at the pharmacy. Not long after Gacy's departure, Peast's mother arrived to pick him up so they could celebrate her birthday as a family. Peast asked his mother to wait, telling her that a contractor wanted to discuss a job opportunity with him. He left the store at 9 p.m., promising to return soon. Tragically, Peast was killed shortly after 10 p.m. at Gacy's residence. D.C. later confessed that he had offered Piest a soft drink at his home before asking him if there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price. Peast responded that he didn't mind hard work, to which Gacy replied that good money could be made by hustling. Pease was skeptical, and Gacy tricked him into putting on handcuffs. Gacy's accounts of the events that followed varied, but in one of his initial statements, he claimed that Peace didn't resist as he undressed him. He also stated that Peast was crying and scared as he put a rope around his neck. Gacy admitted to receiving a phone call from a business associate while Peast was dying. When Peast didn't return, his family reported him missing to the Des Plaines police. Torf identified Gacy as the contractor Peast had likely left with. Lieutenant Joseph Kozinsak, whose son attended the same high school as Peast, decided to investigate Gacy further. A background check revealed that Gacy had a pending battery charge in Chicago and had previously served time in Iowa for the sodomy of a 15-year-old boy. The following evening, Kozingsak and two other officers visited Gacy at his home. D.C. claimed he had asked a young employee at the pharmacy, whom he thought was Peaced, about any remodeling materials behind the store. He was adamant that he had not offered Peaced a job and had only returned to the pharmacy shortly after 8 p.m. because he had forgotten his appointment book. D.C. promised to come to the police station later that evening to give a statement but said he couldn't do so at that moment because his uncle had just passed away. When asked how soon he could come to the station, he responded, You guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? At 3.20 that morning, Daisy arrived at the police station covered in mud, claiming he had been in a car accident. Later that day, he returned to the station and denied any involvement in peace disappearance, repeating that he had not offered him a job. Gacy insisted that he had returned to the pharmacy because Torf had called in to tell him he had left his appointment book there. However, detectives had already spoken to Torf, who denied making such a call. At the detective's request, Gacy wrote a statement detailing his activities on December 11. Suspecting that Gacy might be holding peace at his home, Des Plaines Police obtained a search warrant on December 13. The search turned up several suspicious items, including police badges, a starter pistol, a syringe and hypodermic needle, handcuffs, books on homosexuality, pornographic films, amyl nitrite capsules, a large dildo, a 2x4 with holes drilled into each end, bottles of Valium and Atropine, several driver's licenses, a blue-vitted parka, and underwear too small for Gacy. They also found a class ring with the initials JIS. Despite the suspicious items found, there was no sign of peace at Gacy's home. However, the police were now convinced that Gacy was involved in peace, disappearance, and possibly other crimes. They began surveillance on Gacy while they continued their investigation. Meanwhile, the police traced the class ring to John Allen Scheich, a 19-year-old who had disappeared in January 1977. Scheich's car had been sold to another teenager by Gacy, who claimed Scheich had sold in the car before leaving town. This discovery led the police to believe that Gacy might be involved in other disappearances. On December 15th, Gacy invited the surveillance detectives into his home. While inside, the detectives noticed a smell that they associated with corpses, coming from a heating duct. They also noticed that Gacy's floor had been recently installed, which was suspicious given the winter weather. The Des Plaines Police seized Gacy's Oldsmobile along with other vehicles used for PDM work. Officers Mike Albrecht, David Hatchmeister, Ronald Robinson, and Robert Schultz kept a close watch on Gacy during the ongoing investigation. The next day, they received a call from Michael Rossi, who informed them about the disappearance of Gregory Godzik and the earlier drowning of another PDM employee, Charles Hatchula, in an Illinois river. On December 15th, investigators learned more about Gacy's battery charge from the victim, Jeffrey Rignall, who claimed that Gacy had tricked him into his car, chloroformed, raped, and tortured him before leaving him in Lincoln Park. They also learned about the disappearance of John Butkovich from Gacy's ex-wife and traced a class ring to John Allen Shike. Shike's mother revealed that several items from her son's apartment, including a Motorola TV set, were missing. By December 16th, Gacy was becoming friendly with the surveillance detectives, often inviting them for meals and drinks. He consistently denied any involvement in peace disappearance and accused the officers of harassment due to his political connections or drug use. He even taunted them by breaking traffic laws and managed to lose them several times. That afternoon, Cram agreed to a police interview, revealing that Gacy had once given him a watch, claiming it was from a deceased person. On December 17th, Rossi was formally interviewed and revealed that Gacy had sold him Shaq's car, claiming Shaq needed money to move to California. Further examination of Gacy's Oldsmobile revealed fibers suspected to be human hair. That evening, search dogs indicated that Peace's body had been in Gacy's car. Gacy invited detectives Albrecht and Hatchmaster for a meal that evening. The next morning, he invited them for breakfast, ominously stating, you know, clowns can get away with murder. By December 18th, Gacy was showing signs of stress from the constant surveillance. He visited his lawyer's office to prepare a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plaines Police, demanding an end to their surveillance. The same day, a photo receipt found in Gacy's kitchen was traced to Kimberly Byers, a colleague of Peace at Nissan Pharmacy. She stated that she had borrowed Peaced's code and placed the receipt in the pocket before returning it to them. That evening, Rossi was interviewed again and was more cooperative. He revealed that he had spread lime in Gacy's crawl space at Gacy's request in the summer of 1977. On December 19th, investigators started gathering evidence for a second search warrant for Gacy's house. The same day, Gacy's lawyers filed the civil suit against the Des Plaines police. During another visit to Gacy's house, Officer Schultz noticed a smell he suspected to be rotting corpses coming from a heating duct. On December 20th, both Cram and Rossi were interviewed. Rossi suggested that Gacy might have hidden pieced body in the crawl space. Pram revealed Gacy's attempt to rape him in 1976 and his strange behavior after seeing a clot of mud on his carpet. He also mentioned that Gacy had asked him to spread lime in the crawl space and dig trenches for drainage pipes, which were suspiciously the size of grapes. After being informed that the police had found human remains in his crawl space and that he would now face murder charges, Gacy told officers he wanted to clear the air. In the early morning hours of December 22nd, and in the presence of his lawyers, Gacy provided a formal statement in which he confessed to murdering approximately 30 young males, all of whom he claimed had entered his house willingly. Some victims were referred to by name, but Gacy claimed not to know or remember most of the names. He claimed all were teenage male runaways or male prostitutes, the majority of whom he had buried in his crawlspace. Gacy claimed to have dug only five of the victims' graves in this location and had his employees dig the remaining trenches so that he would have graves available. When shown a driver's license issued to a Robert Haysen which had been found on his property, Gacy claimed not to know him but admitted that this license had been in the possession of one of his victims. In January 1979, he had planned to conceal the corpses even further by covering the entire crawl space with concrete. When questioned specifically about Peast, Gacy confessed to luring him to his house and strangling him on December 11. He also admitted to having slept alongside Peast's body that evening, before disposing of the corpse in the Des Plaines River in the early hours of December 13th. On his way to the police station, he had been in a minor traffic accident after disposing of Peast. His vehicle had slid off an ice-covered road and had to be towed free. Accompanied by police, his lawyers, and his older sister, Gacy was driven to the I-55 bridge on December 23rd to pinpoint the precise spot where he confessed to having thrown the body of Robert Peest and four other victims into the river. Gacy was then taken to his house and instructed to mark his garage floor with orange spray paint to show where he had buried the individual he had supposedly killed in self-defense, whom he named as John Butkovich. To assist officers in their search, Gacy drew a rough diagram of his basement on the phone message sheet to indicate where their bodies were buried. 26 bodies were unearthed from Gacy's crawl space over the next week. Three others were also unearthed elsewhere on his property. Stay tuned for more True Crime Odyssey. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Dacey's trial commenced on February 6, 1980, where he faced charges for 33 murders. The trial took place in Cook County, presided over by Judge Louis Garippo. The jury was chosen from Rockford due to the extensive media coverage in Cook County. Dacey's defense counsel arranged for him to spend over 300 hours with doctors at the Menard Correctional Center in Chester in the year leading up to his trial. He underwent numerous psychological evaluations to assess his mental fitness to stand trial. Casey tried to persuade the doctors that he suffered from multiple personality disorder. He claimed to have four distinct personalities, a hardworking contractor, a clown, a politically active individual, and a policeman named Jack Hanley, whom he referred to as Bad Jack. Gacy's confession to the police was supposedly the recounting of Jack's crimes, who despised homosexuality and viewed male prostitutes as weak, stupid, and degraded scum. His lawyers decided to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. In his opening statement, Robert Mata, one of Gacy's defense attorneys, stated, The insanity defense is often seen as a last resort, an escape. But the defense of insanity is valid and it is the only defense we could use here, because that is where the truth lies. Because if Gacy's normal, then our understanding of normality is completely skewed. The defense portrayed Gacy as a Jekyll and Hyde figure, bringing forth several psychiatric experts who had examined Gacy. Three psychiatric experts at Gacy's trial testified that he was a paranoid schizophrenic with multiple personalities. The prosecution argued that Gacy was sane and fully aware of his actions. They brought forward several witnesses to testify to Gacy's premeditation and his efforts to avoid detection. These witnesses disputed the defense's claims of multiple personalities and insanity. Cram and Rossi testified that Gacy had instructed them to dig drainage trenches and spread lime bags in his crawlspace. They both stated that Gacy would periodically check the crawl space to ensure they and other employees did not deviate from the specific locations he had marked. On February 18th, Robert Stein testified that all the bodies found on Gacy's property were significantly decomposed and putrefied, skeletalized remains, and that of all the autopsies he performed, 13 victims had died of asphyxiation, six of ligature strangulation, one of multiple stab wounds to the chest, in 10 and 10 in undetermined ways. When Gacy's defense team suggested that all 33 deaths were caused by accidental erotic asphyxia, Stein dismissed this as highly unlikely. Jeffrey Rignall testified for the defense on February 21st. Rignall broke down several times while describing Gacy's torture of him in March 1978. During specific cross-examination relating to the torture, Rignall vomited and was excused from further testimony. On February 29th, Donald Voorhees testified about his experience with Gacy and his assault at Gacy's command. Voorhees struggled to testify but briefly attempted to do so before being asked to step down. Robert Donnelly testified the following week, recounting his ordeal with Gacy in December 1977. Donnelly was visibly shaken as he recalled the abuse. During the fifth week of the trial, Gacy wrote a personal letter to Judge Garippo requesting a mistrial for various reasons, including his disapproval of his lawyer's insanity plea, his lawyer's refusal to let him testify, his defense not calling enough medical witnesses, and his belief that the police were lying about verbal statements he had allegedly made to detectives after his arrest, which he claimed were self-serving for the prosecution. Judge Garippo responded to Gacy's letter by informing him that both counsels had not been denied the opportunity or funds to summon expert witnesses to testify, and that, under the law, he had the choice whether he wished to testify and was free to indicate as much to the judge. March 11th marked the beginning of the final arguments presented by both the prosecution and defense attorneys. Terry Sullivan, the prosecuting attorney, meticulously detailed John Gacy's history of abusing young individuals, highlighting his cunning efforts to evade detection. Sullivan painted a haunting picture of Gacy's surviving victims, Voorhees and Donnelly, referring to them as living dead. With conviction, Sullivan labeled Gacy as the worst of all murderers, emphasizing the immense human devastation he had caused. He expressed his fear of how close Gacy came to escaping justice entirely. Following the state's four-hour closing, Sam Amirante, counsel for the defense, took the floor. Amirante accused Sullivan of neglecting to address the evidence in his closing argument and deliberately fueling hatred towards his client. He sought to portray Gacy as a man driven by uncontrollable compulsions, arguing that the state had not met the burden of proving Gacy's sanity beyond a reasonable doubt. Amirante implored the jury to set aside any prejudice they may hold against Gacy and instead deliver a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. He emphasized that Gacy posed a danger to both himself and others, suggesting that studying his psychology and behavior would be valuable to the field of science. On the morning of March 12, William Kunkel continued the prosecution's argument. Kunkel dismissed the defense's claim of insanity as a mere facade, presenting the facts of the case that demonstrated Gacy's ability to think logically and exert control over his actions. He referenced the testimony of a doctor who had examined Gacy in 1968 and concluded that he had an antisocial personality. Kunkel asserted that if the recommendations of this doctor had been heeded, Gacy would not have been released. As he concluded his argument, Kunkel removed photos of Gacy's 22 identified victims from a display board, urging the jury to prioritize justice over sympathy. After deliberating for one hour and 50 minutes, the jury delivered a verdict of guilty on all 33 charges of murder. Additionally, Gacy was found guilty of sexual assault and taking indecent liberties with a child in relation to Robert Piest. This conviction marked the highest number of murders for which any person had been found guilty. During the sentencing phase of the trial, the jury deliberated for over two hours before sentencing Gacy to death for each murder committed after the implementation of the Illinois Statute on Capital Punishment in June 1977. Gacy's execution was scheduled for June 2, 1980. Following his sentencing, Gacy was transferred to the Menard Correctional Center, where he spent 14 years on death row. Confined to his prison cell, Gacy discovered a newfound passion for painting. His artwork drew inspiration from a variety of sources. Gacy's paintings gained recognition and were showcased in exhibitions and sold at auctions. Prior to his trial, Gacy reached out to journalist Russ Ewing, granting him numerous interviews between 1979 and 1981. Ewing later collaborated with author Tim Cahill to publish the book Buried Dreams. The information Gacy shared with Ewing about his first murder played a crucial role in identifying his initial victim. On February 15, 1983, Gacy was attacked by fellow death row inmate Henry Brisbane, also known as the I-57 killer, who stabbed him in the arm with a sharpened wire. Gacy received medical treatment in the prison hospital. During his incarceration, Gacy immersed himself in law books, filing numerous motions and appeals, although none were successful. His appeals focused on issues such as the validity of the initial search warrant granted to the Des Plaines Police on December 13, 1978, and his objection to his lawyer's insanity plea defense. Gacy claimed that while he had some knowledge of five of the murders, the other 28 were committed by employees who had access to his house while he was away on business trips. In mid-1984, the Supreme Court of Illinois upheld Gacy's conviction and ordered his execution by lethal injection on November 14. Gacy appealed this decision, but the Supreme Court of the United States denied his appeal on March 4, 1985. The following year, Gacy filed another post-conviction petition, seeking a new trial. His defense lawyer at the time, Richard Kling, argued that Gacy had received an effective legal counsel during his 1980 trial. However, this petition was dismissed on September 11, 1986. Gacy continued to appeal the 1985 decision for his execution. On September 29, 1988, the Illinois Supreme Court upheld his conviction and set a new execution date for January 11, 1989. After the Supreme Court denied Gacy's final appeal in October 1993, the Illinois Supreme Court officially scheduled his execution for May 10, 1994. On the morning of May 9, 1994, Gacy was transferred to Stateville Correctional Center in preparation for his execution. Later that day, he was granted a private picnic on the prison grounds with his family. As his last meal, Gacy requested a bucket of KFC, a dozen fried shrimp, French fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. In the evening, he received the last rites from a Catholic priest before being escorted to the Stateville Execution Chamber. As the hours ticked away before Gacy's execution, a crowd of over 1,000 people gathered outside the correctional center. The majority voiced their support for the execution, while a small group of anti-death penalty protesters also made their presence known. Some of those in favor of the execution wore t-shirts referencing Gacy's past as a clown, with satirical slogans like no tears for the clown. Before the execution commenced, there was an unexpected complication. The chemicals used for the execution solidified, causing a blockage in the IV tube. The execution team swiftly replaced the clogged tube, and the process resumed. The entire procedure lasted 18 minutes. Anesthesiologists attributed the problem to the inexperience of prison officials in conducting executions. This incident prompted Illinois to adopt an alternative method of lethal injection. One of the prosecutors from Gacy's trial, William Kunkel, remarked, he got a much easier death than any of his victims. Published reports described Gacy as a diagnosed psychopath who showed no remorse for his heinous crimes. In his final statement to his lawyer, he asserted that his execution would not compensate for the loss of others and accused the state of murdering him. Reportedly, Gacy's last spoken words were kiss my ass. However, prosecutor William Kunkel clarified in 2020 that these words were directed at a prison official and were not part of any official statement prior to Gacy's execution. After Gacy's death was confirmed at 12.58 a.m. on May 10, 1994, his brain was removed and given to Helen Morrison, a defense witness at his trial. Morrison, who had interviewed Gacy and other serial killers, aimed to identify common personality traits among violent sociopaths. Gacy's body was subsequently cremated. Even after his death, questions remained about Gacy and his heinous crimes. Upon his arrest, Gacy wasted no time in informing investigators that he had not acted alone in several of the murders. He expressed concern about the arrest of his associates and when questioned about their involvement, he admitted they had participated directly. Gacy specifically implicated Cram and Rossi in multiple murders. This revelation led some defense attorneys and investigators to believe that there was overwhelming evidence suggesting Gacy had worked with an accomplice. In the 1980s, Gacy disclosed to FBI profiler Robert Ressler that two or three employees from PDM had assisted him in committing several murders. Ressler, convinced that there were still unanswered questions surrounding the case, believed that Gacy had killed more than the reported 33 victims and that these crimes extended beyond state lines. However, Gacy neither confirmed nor denied Ressler's suspicions. Jeffrey Rignall, a victim who had suffered assault and torture at the hands of Gacy, recalled seeing a young man with brown hair witnessing his abuse during the ordeal. Rignall also claimed to have seen a light turning on in another part of the house, further suggesting the presence of others involved. Just days before his arrest, Gacy was observed meeting with two employees, Michael Rossi and Ed Hefner, at a bar. Anxious and speaking in hushed tones, Gacy warned them not to disappoint him, emphasizing their indebtedness to him. Overheard snippets of their conversation hinted at the burial of five individuals, raising suspicions about their involvement. During interviews from Death Row, Gacy mentioned that three PDM employees, including Cram and Rossi, were considered suspects in the murders. He alleged that they possessed keys to his house. Another name that surfaced was Philip Pask, a former employee closely associated with John Norman, who operated a sex trafficking ring known as the Delta Project. The proximity of Norman's residence to where two victims were last seen alive fueled speculation about Gacy's potential connection to this trafficking ring. Gacy also claimed that he was not in Chicago when 16 of the identified victims disappeared. In 2012, travel records emerged suggesting that he had been in another state during three of the murders, implying the involvement of one or more accomplices. Investigators took note of Robert Young, the companion of victim Russell Nelson who gave conflicting accounts of Nelson's disappearance. Young filed a missing persons report and later attempted to extort money from Nelson's parents for a search. When Nelson's brothers arrived in Chicago to search for him, Young offered them employment at PDM. However, Young was never called to testify at Gacy's trial, leaving unanswered questions about his potential involvement.